In 2006, the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, offered the first working definition of a learning health system. Since then, data collection and assessment capacities and opportunities have greatly increased, as have healthcare costs and awareness of inequities in the healthcare system. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with J. Michael McGuinness, Executive Officer and Senior Scholar at the National Academy of Medicine. As part of the journal's series in honor of the 50th anniversary of the institution, Dr. McGinnis has co-authored a perspective article about supporting the evolution of a continuously learning health system. Dr. McGinnis, could you begin by explaining the concept of a learning health system and how has the vision of that changed over the past 15 years? The definition that we developed in 2006, which you referenced, goes something like the following. The learning health system is one in which science, informatics, incentives, and culture are aligned for continuous improvement, innovation, and equity with best practices and discovery seamlessly embedded in the delivery process, individuals and families as active participants in all elements, and new knowledge generated as an integral byproduct of the delivery experience. Well, now that's a lot of words that in effect means that in our society, we often want things faster, better, cheaper, and more personal. And the fact is that we now have, as a result of advances over the last generation, the prospect for doing that. I'd like to make just three points, and then we can go into whichever elements uh, seem most interesting from your perspective. And those three points would be, first, that there are stunning prospects for continuous learning and improvement in health and healthcare. Second, is that technology is not the rate-limiting factor. And third, that there's a crisis level imperative for change with respect to the societal and health and healthcare forces involved. Looking first at the history, what's changed about the healthcare system and the way medicine's practiced over the past 50 years that's made this kind of continuous learning approach possible? The changes that have occurred over the last 50 years that make it possible are primarily outside of the health system in that they reflect the kind of advances that have occurred in technology, primarily with respect to our ability to access information quickly, our ability to assess that information comprehensively and effectively, not only with new analytic techniques, but with new technologies that will help us by using artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other approaches to analyzing large databases. So what we have is the ability to draw upon exponentially increased sizes of databases in order to identify lessons by applying different algorithms, turn those lessons into research findings with selective trials, and then apply those lessons in clinical care. So the issue, as we point out in our article, the major advances that have occurred have been more on the technical side and the ability to develop a continuous learning cycle, one in which information is developed and generated as part of the care experience, and it's processed, analyzed, and applied for improvement as part of the delivery experience. Those are all technically possible, and they are occurring in some places in society, in health and healthcare in the nation, but only at the very early stages. 
And the point that's important to emphasize is that while the technologies that have developed and been applied in companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft are changing the information ecosystem, the application of those technologies in practical terms to our health system are only beginning to occur, and there are substantial barriers in that respect. So taking those four elements of the Institute's definition, one by one, starting with science, how is science going to change? Our scientific process has traditionally, over the last two generations, uh, been focused around the notion of episodic assessments, that is to say, identifying issues that need to be engaged, deliberately designing studies to improve the understanding of the dynamics involved, and ensuring that those studies are, for all practical purposes, if they're a classic randomized controlled trial, insulated from other dimensions in society that may be in play. What that means is that we have developed a fairly sophisticated, certainly expensive system of assessing health challenges and health interventions, which is no longer necessary in the world in which we live. As a result of technologies that have been developed, we can now ensure that the assessment process is more continuous, it's query-based, that is to say, with large databases that we have, we can target queries that are oriented around particular questions, and we can ensure that the queries' responses not only give us responses related to a particular intervention, but also factor in other elements in play, what might be called metadata, but the other relations that are in play in our complicated set of health domains that are in play. By that, what I mean is that health is not a factor of simple fate. It's not just simply what we have in the way of genetic predispositions. It's also not a factor solely of what kind of healthcare we receive. The dominant features that determine our health prospects are social, environmental, behavioral, as a society. And so in order to ensure that the information that we gather to apply for improved health strategies we have to have information that relates to all of those five domains of influence. The major change that has occurred within health and healthcare that makes this learning health system possible has been the development of the mapping sequencing of the human genome, which now allows us to think about, we're still in the very early stages, but to think about identifying and assessing the ways in which our genetic predispositions interact with our behavioral choices or our social circumstances or the care we receive or the environments in which we live, work, and play. So we have the ability with the kind of technology that has developed and the, what we're learning from the human genome to predict with much greater capacity how these interactions will in fact play out in health terms and to apply those lessons in a much more personal fashion. And we talk about the importance of precision medicine because we do now have a capacity to be more tailored and targeted in our medical assessment process as we learn more about the different effects of various interventions on different individuals about precision public health as we learn about how different environmental exposures may impact different people in different ways. So if you're an asthmatic and you have a special susceptibility to air pollution, 
We can identify the areas that are more hazardous to your health. And we can target our public health interventions even in a more precise fashion. And what that ultimately means is that in addition to precision medicine and precision public health, what we're seeing develop is the possibility for precision health. And it's a prospect that allows us to learn and apply lessons in theory much more rapidly. But we are, to get back to the elements of the learning health system definition that I mentioned, we are restricted by scientific approaches that haven't caught up with our 2021 status in society. We got a hint of the kind of prospects with warp speed and the NIH's mobilization of its capacity working in public-private partnerships and in cooperation with other countries to develop vaccines that were able to be applied in large-scale trials on a very timely fashion in which those kinds of technologies were applied. But it took a global emergency in order to marshal the will to bring together the technologies and the parties in play for the advances possible. But I think that now that we've seen that the kind of collaboration and the use of large-scale databases and the development of application of artificial intelligence and machine learning as an accelerant to the knowledge development process is going to make a substantial difference. So we have at least with the scientific community and the evidence development domain, the prospects of important changes. And then looking at the second element, informatics, informatics and technology, what's going to be happening there? In the informatics domain, again, The technologies are splendid, and they are making possible the kind of continuous learning and and virtuous learning cycles, if you will, that uh, we envision. But still, looking throughout the healthcare delivery system, we see that interoperability is still a major barrier to the cooperative and collaborative assessment of the data that theoretically are available to society. I mean, in principle, what we would like to see is a societal clinical data trust in which we were able to draw upon the collective lessons from millions of people simultaneously. But we're still in the thousands and tens of thousands of people at this point as a result of a variety of factors, some of them proprietary, some of them regulatory, a few of them technologic, that place a limit on our ability to use informatics at its full potential. These are solvable problems, but they require the will of society to solve them. The third element is incentives, which I can imagine could present a real obstacle. How do you see incentives needing to change? On the incentives issue, we have even larger barriers at hand because in this country, our payment system is one that is still largely focused on fee-for-service as opposed to payment for outcomes or systemic-wide improvement. And as a result, We have a system that is very fragmented, and fragmentation is the antithesis of what's necessary to achieve continuous learning. The learning that we see developing in various loci is too often separated, sometimes with firewalls, from learning that's possible to enhance the aggregate cadence with the kind of collaborative possibilities that would exist. If you look, for example, at the kind of progress that was made in experience that was cited in our article, the experience of one hospital system with 43 hospitals and 74,000 patients 
looking at ways to address the lethal problem of central line associated bloodstream infections, was able to identify an intervention that was effective and yielded a 44% reduction in all-cause infections of that sort in 18 months. And the author's estimate is that it would have taken 64 years for that kind of information to be generated in a single hospital. Now, that's a small and, in terms of the aggregate potential, almost trivial example, but it's the magnitude of its potential impact in itself that gives a sense of the real possibility. But in order for our society to be able to take advantage of those kinds of scalable lessons from scalable databases, we're clearly going to have to have payment systems that are focused on ensuring that rewards are given to healthcare institutions for their cooperation with other healthcare institutions and data collaboration in order to generate the kind of information and lessons that are possible. And then finally, the overarching element, culture. How does that fit into this learning health system? Culture needs to be accommodated and aligned along with more conducive incentives and better interoperable uh, informatics and a progressive scientific approach. And by culture, I mean that not only do we have to put behind us, and we're seeing changes in this respect, the millennia patterns of unidirectional care processes in which the provider or the clinician tells the patient what to do, but to have it be a partnership. It's very clear that the learning process is dependent upon the direct involvement, whether it's via iPhones or via agreements between clinicians and patients about the importance of care processes in the home, whether it's the use of telehealth, whether it's the use of in-home therapeutics and diagnostics, that patients have to be culturally prepared for that full partnership and clinicians have to be culturally supportive of those full partnerships. So in order to accomplish what is technically possible in the form of a continuous learning health system, there have to be accelerated changes in each of those dimensions of science, informatics, payment, and culture. But the consequences of not taking advantage of what we know and of not engaging those barriers are formidable. And as I mentioned at the outset, we're at a crisis level imperative for change. If you just look at how we perform in what all of us, every one of us in this nation would like to see in terms of health system performance, that is healthcare and health across the board that is effective, efficient, equitable, and delivered through an experience that plays to the interests and priorities of patients involved, the changes are going to have to be substantial. As we all know now from looking at the newspaper headlines, our performance in the global system with respect to issues such as maternal mortality, infant mortality, life expectancy, overall health outcome performance ranks us below three dozen of our colleagues in the community of nations. With respect to efficiency, the $4 trillion that we're going to spend on health and health care this year is by far the greatest in the community of nations. And yet the best estimates are that in the range of a third of that makes no impact at all of a positive nature on health outcomes. And the expenditures that we have in health care are crowding out other dimensions of 
health investments, such as those in the social services arena, that as we all are learning, have a very important and for many people, the most important potential impact on health outcomes. We saw during the COVID pandemic experience, we are still seeing the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on lower income populations. The National Academy of Medicine issued a report earlier this year looking at the most vital directions important for the nation in health and health care. And the conclusion was that the number one challenge in health and health care, the number one priority in health and health care in 2021 is health equity. And if we are going to achieve gains in the effectiveness, efficiency, equity, and quality of care and the care experience in this nation, we simply have to take advantage of the potential that is now technically at hand to dramatically accelerate the generation of new knowledge about ways in which we can improve health outcomes and the application of that knowledge. We can no longer wait, and we certainly don't have to wait, 17 years before discovery is applied in the clinical and health arena. Finally, what do you think the shift to a continuously learning health system is going to mean for physicians in coming years? How will the day-to-day jobs of physicians change under this kind of model? Well, I think the day-to-day job for clinicians can improve substantially. One of the biggest challenges for clinicians, physicians, nurses, and others across the board is the fragmentation of the system as it currently operates. The fragmentation has implications for the way medicine is practiced. It has implications for the way it's paid for. It has implications for the way incentives are structured. And the stress levels among physicians are substantial because they are, in effect, we are, in effect, victims of these structural and systemic challenges. And if we focus as a society on the notion of a continuous learning system in which we as clinicians and our patients are very much a part of the learning and the care improvement process, and if the factors involved in making that possible the economic factors, that is the payment incentives, rewarding outcomes and not relatively meaningless, often performance indicators. If we're assessing healthcare delivery organizations on the overall performance of an organization as a learning health system, and not on the several thousand individual indices that may have very little bearing on the overall importance to the patient, The stress levels of clinicians will no doubt decline, at least from the measurement burden in itself. But in addition, when the economic structures and the cultural factors involved in clinical care are focused more substantially on what matters, both with respect to the delivery of care and the improvement of outcomes, but as all parts of the system as essential components, including first and foremost, patients and families, the stresses ought to be substantially less, at least from those dimensions. Now, there is no question that no one can wave a magic wand and assume that our payment system is going to dramatically change overnight, that the cultural factors are going to change overnight, or that the ways in which technology is entered into the normal workflow of practices is going to change overnight. But these are solvable issues And clinicians who currently work in systems that more approximate the beginnings of a continuous learning health system are generally much more satisfied. Thank you, Dr. McGinnis.